Genesis chapter 4. Our text for this morning will begin at verse 11, the curse of Cain. But I'll begin reading one more time from verse 1, particularly with those of you who have not been with us as we've studied this chapter closely in recent weeks. Let's begin at verse 1. We'll read through verse 16. Genesis chapter 4, this is the word of God. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me. From the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. Seek the Lord's blessing on his word. Father, we ask you once again that the voice that is heard in this room would indeed be by your power and your blessing 
first and foremost, the voice of Christ. We pray that you'd use your servant in that way and so bless your people in that way. We ask that you'd leave none of us out. The blessing of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're returning this morning to the first murder trial of human history. Cain is the defendant on trial. Abel, his younger brother, is the murder victim. And God is the prosecutor, the judge, and the jury. And as we began considering this first murder trial of human history last week, we were shocked by the conduct of the defendant, his denial, his defiance. We took some closer note of his testimony. Am I my brother's keeper? We call that the words of a sociopath. We especially profited, I trust, from considering this blood of Abel that wouldn't be quiet, that cried out, to a God who sees all that happens in the earth. Well, we're returning today to the actual sentencing of Cain. We left that for today. That is to say, the curse that God pronounces on this first murderer. It starts in verse 11. And folks, I need to say to you at the outset, I know you have already heard in Genesis, the previous chapter, God pronouncing curses, but this is nothing like what you've heard before. Be forewarned. The sentencing of Cain here near the very beginning of human history will prove to be a foretaste of the final sentencing of the wicked by Christ himself, the end of human history. I want to make that case to you this morning. What we're going to look at is a fearful thing. It's a dreadful thing. Indeed, it's a hellish thing sense of the word. But we're also going to see, before we're done, uh, a glimmer, actually a lot more than a glimmer of the mercy of God. So, hang on. Through the dreadful into the delightful. We'll look at three things. A fate worse than death, number one. A sinner in the throes of despair, number two. And a God of surprising mercy, number So we'll begin with a fate worse than death. In verse 10, God says to Cain, your guilt is established by the testimony of Abel's blood. I've heard the blood of Abel. I will repay. Vengeance is mine. This is where we left off. Verse 11, God announces a twofold sentence on this murderer Cain. You could put it this way. God says, I condemn you to uselessness and to homelessness. I'll tell you why I put it that way. Uselessness. Remember how Cain was introduced to us back in verse 2? Cain was a worker of the ground. That's how we're introduced to Cain. And apparently Cain had achieved real success in this. We find him bringing an offering to God of the fruit of the ground. He was a farmer. He raised crops. That was his profession, his vocation. You might say that was Cain's thing as we speak. That's what he was good at. That's how he made his living. 
if he were at a cocktail party and someone said, what do you do? That would have been his answer. I farm. With that in the back of your mind, listen again to what God says to Cain. Verse 11. Now, you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. Now, that may sound a little bit to you like what he said to Adam, but it has uh, very little to do with what he said to Adam. With Adam, he said, you are going to work the ground, and Adam, for the first time, it's going to be hard for you. You will have success, but only against sweat and pain, subduing the earth in the curse on Adam, and all of his descendants will involve heartache, but it will still be possible. Cain receives a far more severe judgment unique to him. We're to understand from what God says to Cain that no matter how much he works the ground, it will not produce for him. The word is it will not yield its strength to him. Cain, you will utterly fail if you try to do what you've been doing. I condemn you to unproductivity uselessness as a farmer. Now, I think there was a supernatural element in this curse that followed Cain all his days. That's all I can make sense of this opposite from a green thumb that God condemns him with. God is saying, I'm going to overrule in your life, your efforts to do what you did before. Nothing will thrive under your hand, Cain, You might say Cain's been fired, or more accurately, you might say he's been rendered useless at his work. God's curse is uselessness. Uh, I call the second part homelessness. We've already seen at this point in world history, there's a human society, yes, but it's a rather small society. It's Adam, it's Eve, and it was two sons. There's some debate about whether they already have daughters by now or not, we don't learn about the daughters until chapter 5. But in any case, there's human society, but it's ever so small. Yet, it is society. They work together. They apparently worship together. They ate, slept. They probably goofed off. Together, they're in this wide world, but they do have each other. Bear that in mind as you feel the full weight of what God now says in verse 12. Cain, you shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. Cain had himself shattered the peace and security of his home. And as punishment for that, Cain is condemned to a kind of homelessness. Now, you'll see as we continue in this chapter, Cain does, in fact, establish himself. He builds a city, and there's a certain civilization that comes from him and his descendants, but it will still be life in exile. And notice, this is particularly important, and this is something that registers with Cain, even. It will be life away from the presence of the Lord. Do you see that in verse 14? Cain is understanding what God is saying as he drives him away. He says, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. 
I shall be hidden. Cain is seeing in this exile, not just being removed from God's people, but God. There's so much revealed in that statement and this connection of ideas. We have gathered, haven't we, that even outside of the garden, God has made his presence known to his people. There has been a kind of worship uh, that has been taking place and a kind of community of those in fellowship with God. You could call it the prehistoric church. You're already seeing it. And God was present even outside of Eden with his people. But when Cain is cast out of that community, that worshiping community, he no longer has access to God's face. Friends, if you put these two parts of the curse of Cain together, you have what I've called this first point, a fate worse than death. Abel's death was better than what Cain's life would become. Cain apparently realized this immediately. My punishment is greater than I can bear, he says in response. Why would he say that? Because he's realizing God is taking from me the two things that make life worth living. Usefulness as a servant of God. Fellowship with God and his people. Curse of Cain. Folks, do you know what I think is pictured here? Already in Genesis? In this curse of Cain? I think in Cain and his experience, his falling under this unique curse to him is actually being pictured here, the fate of all unrepentant sinners, the ultimate fate of all Cain's. The fate of the damned. That's what's being depicted here. Now the rest of the Bible will be required to teach us more fully about heaven and hell. Just think of what you know about heaven and hell from the rest of the Bible and particularly what you know about those who are condemned to hell. You'll understand why I'm saying this. Uh, what will we be doing in the new heavens and the new earth, brothers and sisters, those who are redeemed in the Lord Jesus? What will we be doing? Well, the, the new heavens and new earth is spoken of as a, a bustling city, a new Jerusalem, one in which the kings of the earth have brought their glory, one in which we will be restored to this glorious task of taking dominion over a renewed earth. We'll be working and being godlike in our work. What will those in hell be doing? Anything productive? No, they'll be stripped of their usefulness in the kingdom. Remember the word that Jesus uses of hell? Uh, Jesus, who tells us more about hell than anyone else? In the Greek, it's the word Gehenna. In Jesus' day, Gehenna was the valley outside of Jerusalem where the city dwellers came and dumped their trash. They would light fires 
to consume the trash so they could keep dumping more. That's Jesus' picture of hell. Jesus speaks of the final fate of unrepentant sinners as being treated like rubbish, useless, rejected. Where will God be in the new heavens and the new earth? Well, he will be dwelling with his people. We'll see his face in the face of his son. The Bible makes this clear, doesn't it? What about those in hell? The apostle tells us they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. What Cain is realizing is happening to him. He's being banished from the presence of the Lord. I'm telling you, he is in both of these ways a picture of the plight of the damned. There will be more to learn about hell in the Bible. And again, it doesn't come into its full a clarification, its full picture to us until Jesus has come. He talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. But brothers and sisters, the substance of it is beginning here. Not all the doctrine of hell is here, but a wicked man, deprived of all usefulness in the kingdom, a wicked man banished from the presence of the king himself. God had said to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? comes of Cain, but will come to all who do not do well and are finally rejected by God. To begin with looking at a fate worse than death. The second thing we need to see is a sinner in the throes of despair. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground. From your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. It's really remarkable the transformation that we're witnessing in this man. As soon as the sentence comes upon him, his defiance evaporates. And all we see in him is despair. Something in this proud, hard-hearted man has collapsed. He had been flying at the face of God. Now he's groveling at his feet. He's broken, he's crushed, he's desperate, he's despairing. What explains this? This change. Well, whatever it is, it's not a change for the good, brothers and sisters. That's be very clear. It's not repentance. You'll notice Cain's not denying his sin any longer, but he's not expressing sorrow for it either. His focus is actually not on his sin. It's on his punishment. And if you listen carefully, he's still protesting. My sentence is too severe. There's something particularly a Pathetic about Cain's self-pity. Cain, the killer of his brother, actually dares to say to God, 
someone might kill me. Whoever finds me will kill me. By the way, uh, there's been some discussion about who Cain might have in mind when he says someone might find me and kill me. Uh, There were few candidates that would do that in the moment that he said this. Mother, father, yeah. But apparently Cain is thinking of generations to come. His dad does live to be 930 years old, and over that long of a life, there would be potential for any number of avengers of Abel's blood. So here's the rich irony. Cain, the murderer of his brother, is saying, if you cast me out, if you put me outside of your presence, I'll be murdered by my brother. There's no remorse here. It's just desperation and despair. Cain's gotten a glimpse now of what the consequences of his sin will be, and it's utterly undone him. He's had a little conversion, but not of grace. He's been transformed from this hard-hearted, proud, insolent, defiant man into a desperate man in the face of God's judgment. It made me think of what the Apostle John speaks of as what will happen on the last day to countless proud, strong, otherwise defiant men of this world when Christ comes, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? That's what the final day will be like. The world of Cain's having their little conversion, but not of the grace of God, due to the terror of God. I would actually say, my brothers and sisters, that transformation that we're seeing in Cain as he realizes what now awaits him as the consequences justly so of his sin that transformation perspective happens thousands of times. The moment of the death of the wicked. One moment, even on a deathbed, a proud, profane, defiant, atheist, mocking even those who come to try to minister the gospel to him. Next moment, able only to whimper, my punishment is greater than I can bear. You've hidden me from your face. You see why I say that Cain, his curse, and Cain and his response to his curse is pointing us to the fate of all those who finally fall under the judgment of God. You know, I I mentioned, uh, I did more than mention last week, we focused on Abel as the writer of Hebrews speaks of him as the father of all the martyrs of the church. 
And if that's so, then Cain would be the father of all the persecutors of the church. And we saw last week how the blood of the martyrs does cry out through the ages to God for vengeance, and vengeance is God's, and he will repay. We saw that last week. Just point out, by the nature of the case, martyrs don't live to see their murderers falling under divine justice. But they do have the example of Cain. They can be certain that those who take their physical life will one day be reduced, but for the grace of God, to absolute despair. God takes vengeance. I think that's helpful to us, brothers and sisters, in trying to grapple with what Jesus says in Matthew 10. Do not fear those who kill the body. but cannot kill the soul. How do you not fear somebody who can kill your body? By remembering Cain. It's a man destined to be destroyed, body and soul, in hell. You don't fear that man. You fear for that man. That man will have a little conversion. Not of grace. They will walk the path of Cain, be utterly undone, and face the wrath of God. The Roman emperor Diocletian had that little conversion. So will the modern-day tyrant and persecutor of the church, Kim Jong-un. Lenin did, and Stalin so will the leaders of ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Boko Haram. You can continue your own list. You're the one falling to the blow, the one who can take the life, the body. You don't get to see this life, God's vengeance. But you see Cain. You see Cain whimpering in despair. These are weighty things, my brothers and sisters. A faint worse than death, a sinner in the throes of despair. There's one more thing I want to look at with you. And that's a God of surprising mercy. Now maybe I should speak for myself. I sure find something surprising in God's response to Cain. Am I the only one? Isn't this an inherently surprising element of the story? Verse 15, then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. I'm surprised by that. What is God doing with this mark of Cain? Well, there's some mystery in that, to be sure, as we will see as I return to it in a moment. But here's the greater mystery. Why is God doing this? Why is he acting in some capacity here on Cain's behalf? That's surprising. Cain has just whined to God about the likelihood of being lynched someday for something he's done. He's worried that justice 
mob justice might catch up with him for killing his brother. I don't know about you, but that thought doesn't arouse a lot of pity in me. Cain would be getting his just desserts. And I don't just have this for my intuition. Later in Genesis, God will make this abundantly clear. Genesis 9, he'll say to Noah and his descendants, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. What Cain's afraid might happen is exactly what should happen. At least according to the demands of justice. And I don't know about you, but I sort of thought God was in justice MO right now. So then God does something totally unexpected, totally surprising, at least initially, utterly inexplicable. He responds in mercy to this hard hearted murderer. He says, Cain. You don't need to be afraid of someone taking your life. I'll not allow it. Cain, I'm going to make a provision for you to live out your days without the fear of violence, such as you've carried out against your brother. Cain, I will be your protector. familiar story, but still, somehow, I wasn't ready for that. Now, let me just point out something obvious, but it's important to be clear about. I have been describing Cain and the curse on Cain and the despair he experiences under that curse as a picture for us of the fate of the damned. But let me just point out something that's obvious. Cain isn't actually cast into hell in Genesis 4. He's allowed to live. Presumably a long life, in fact. God only stays his hand from carrying out full justice and swift vengeance on Cain, he places Cain out of reach of the hand of others who would administer that justice to him. And you know what we're seeing in this perhaps most unlikely of moments. We're seeing what later revelation, what God himself will say about himself. We're seeing God exercise his prerogative to show mercy on whomever he will show mercy and compassion on whoever he wants to show compassion to. That's what we're seeing. Now, I have to admit I have no special insight into the true nature of the mark of Cain. Uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you. It's been debated by readers of Genesis 4 for literally thousands of years. I'm not going to settle the debate today. Uh, The theories about whatever this mark was that God placed on Cain run in two broad directions. Some of our church fathers noted that the word that is used in the Hebrew to refer to a fugitive and a wanderer in some places refers to, uh, it can be translated to stagger. 
So the picture is of him staggering out of the presence of God under the weight of this curse and then spending the rest of his life staggering and in exile. And some have said, well, the mark of Cain was some kind of epileptic fit or seizure, or some kind of recurring extreme palsy. And so when people saw this poor wretch going into his conniptions, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with him. They would pity and perhaps even recoil in horror at him. And then that interpretation, that general direction has led to other theories that God struck Cain with some kind of physical disfigurement that no one wanted to get near him, much less do violence to him. There's a whole other direction that others go in making sense of the mark of Cain. It's actually one that I've come to favor. This understands the sign not of, to be of God's curse, but a sign of God's protection, despite the curse. In other words, uh, this whole view sees this not as a disfiguring mark, but a distinguishing mark. One that would in some way have communicated to everyone who saw him, this is a man set apart by God, don't touch. Now, that still leaves us with a lot of mystery about what this mark would have been again, I think this fits better with the supernaturalism of the rest of the story. After all, we we do have a story that has just ended with an angel and a flaming sword keeping Cain and everyone else from going back into the Garden of Eden. It also, this view of the mark of Cain fits better with the compassion that we're seeing in God now towards this despicable man. We actually saw it from the start. Can I just remind you? We saw God call out to Cain. Where is your brother? We saw God not respond immediately to the murder of Abel in mercy. We're now seeing him placing on Cain a mark that will keep him safe. There's something else you should know about this mark of Cain. Something you should know about the word mark, actually. It's the same Hebrew word that's elsewhere translated sign. It will be used again in Genesis 9 as God speaks to Noah. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be as a sign. Same word for mark of the covenant between me and the earth. It will be used again in Genesis 17, this word mark in the mark of Cain. It will be used in Genesis 17, God speaking to Abraham, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign, a mark of the covenant between me and you. Say, Pastor, what are you saying? Is Cain receiving some kind of covenant sign from God? Yes, of a sort. Brothers and sisters, God has committed himself to Cain. I will be your protector. 
He's given him a mark. It represents that commitment to Cain and anyone who meets him. One commentator put it this way, Cain is a marked man in a positive sense. He leaves God's presence, not God's protection. Brothers and sisters, you know from the rest of Scripture, this is the way God works. He makes promises, commits himself to sinners, and then he gives signs of those promises. And this is not saving grace that's being represented in this sign, but it is mercy of the most extraordinary kind. Derek Kidner says, it's the utmost that mercy can do for the unrepentant. So astonishing. So we'll have to be content with some mystery about the precise way that God marks Cain. But that's okay. It's okay to be in the dark about that. Because we're not in the dark about the main thing. We know why God is not carrying out the full demands of justice on Cain all at once. We know God. We know why he's not. We know why he's showing mercy. Why does God ever stay his hand and offer life to unrepentant sinners? Why does he do this? You know this. I could look, turn to dozens of passages in the Old Testament. Let me turn to one New Testament passage that sums them all up. Paul, uh, Peter, rather. He's just made the sobering statement in 2 Peter 3, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Then by way of explanation, why God hasn't come in judgment yet. He says so famously now, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Folks, there's no mystery about why God does this in light of all that we know about this God. God is showing mercy to Cain in order to give him further opportunity to repent. He delays judgment and destruction of the godly, ungodly in General, for this reason. I have found it so edifying to, to go back through the uh, time in a little bit of a, uh, a time capsule and see how the exegesis of the fathers throughout uh, the centuries have again and again come back to a kind of awe at the mercy of God towards Cain. This from the early church. Do you wish to see the loving kindness of God? And the extent of his forbearance, listen to the story of Cain. Though the sin was great, the sentence was life. This from the Puritan era, this was the sentence passed upon Cain, and even in death, there was mercy mixed. Inasmuch as he was not immediately cut off, but had space given him to repent, for God is long-suffering towards us not willing that any should perish. This from a faithful commentator of our day. Rather than executing Cain on the spot, 
He makes him a fugitive who will be frustrated in his working the ground, but this frustration could lead to repentance if only Cain would receive it. God would have been right to destroy Cain, but instead he offers protection. This is a big God. John Chrysostom is one of our church fathers who actually convinces himself that Cain was eventually saved. And I do have to say, we don't have biblical evidence for that. But you know what? Can't rule it out either. In light of the mercy of God. Here's how that's of succeeding relevance to us today. There are sinners all around us, perhaps even among us, who are living under the curse of Cain. They have no remorse for their sin, only sorrow for the sufferings that sin brings. They're bound for a future of being cast out as refuse away from God's presence, yet they live. They're sustained and preserved by God. They don't fall under his swift wrath. They're kept by his mercy. They're given a chance day by day to escape his judgment by turning to him. You might say they live under the curse of Cain, facing a fate worse than death, yet benefiting from something like the mark of Cain. The protection of God, yet for a little longer. This may be true of some in this room. You're a Cain. This is you. Here's the good news. God in his mercy has left the door back into his presence. Open. There's no angel with a flaming sword standing between you and God. Verse 16 ends the story, this part of the story, by saying, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. In other words, he did this to himself. God stands ready to receive Cain. He said to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you're a Cain here today, doing well looks like first being broken for your sin, not just the consequences of it, and turning to God in faith that he will do something about your sin, that in Christ in his blood, he will take your sin away, and he'll give you a heart that loves the righteousness of Abel. This may be true of someone that you love very much. He or she is a Cain. Good news for you about that person is that the day of salvation been extended. Can't tell you whether your loved one will fall into the fate of Cain or not any more than I can Cain, but I know why he or she continues to take breath in to their lungs. It's because God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Nothing will end the day of God's protection sooner than God himself. And he is a God 
shocking usage. This may be true of someone that you know at work, or at the Y, or wherever. That man's a cane. Good news for you is that you have opportunity to share with him or her that our God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You need to have a conversation about Christ with that Cain. Be part of God's purpose for, as it were, putting a mark of protection for a little longer on that person. You might be the means of that Cain coming again to the presence of God. Well, my friends, we're going to move on from this very grim portion of God's word. We have encountered in Cain a sinner with a reptilian nature. Kids, that means he's like a reptile, like a snake. Cain, that's how we find him in Genesis 4. Cold-blooded murder, deceptive, defiant, utterly remorseless, self-absorbed, even in his despair, He's a true seed of the serpent. Son of the devil. That's how we encounter him. Genesis 4. We also encounter in Genesis 4 a God. In his just sentence on Cain. Showing him mercy. Crying out to this murderer. Sparing him the death that he deserves even committing to protect him. It's enough to make one think that if God is merciful to a snake like Cain, there's hope for anyone. That's exactly what you're supposed to think. Brothers and sisters, amen. Let's go to the Lord. Merciful God that he is. Dear Lord, the contrast could not be more dramatic between the heart of this sinner and the heart of his God. The way of this sinner, the way of his God. And as those who have had that past of being ourselves in need of rescue, the domain of Satan, bondage to his will. We thank you and praise you that you're merciful even to those with this kind of nature. We pray that your mercy would be surprising to us in our day, in our midst. We pray, our Father, that you would give us the joy of Conversions of grace among sinners like Cain. Oh, Lord, grow our awe of your astonishing mercy in this way. And all this we seek from you for Jesus' sake. Amen.